Before we jump into the message, let me tell you where this is born from, if you're wondering why we're talking about heretics and why we might be going where we're going. This has been born from, or you know, really created, because of the polarization in our culture. And that polarization, or that divide, that uh, feeling of, you know, it's, it's us against them, or you know, they're, they're different than us, this has existed in churches since the beginning of time, even before there was a church. But it's, of course, even more happening these days, and it's, it's more acidic, it's more corrosive, it's more cancerous than it's ever been before. And this happens in our families, it happens with people that you work with, it happens with uh, friends that you used to be friends with that now you don't want anything to do with. And so I got to thinking about this history of what it means to be a heretic, that there's always been people who have been branded heretics or they teach or believe heresy, which is a belief or an idea theologically, usually, but not always, that is unorthodox or a little bit different than what the church might teach. And so you know this if you know your history, that for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has considered itself the, I mean, the guardian of truth, if you will. And this has been true not just in theological or biblical realms, it's also true in terms of science or the way the world works, you name it. And so hopefully by the end of this series, you will thoughtfully and maybe with a new understanding say, well, you know what, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I'm a heretic. And so are the people that I want to connect with. And the beauty of that, of course, is that we begin to, instead of drawing lines and deciding who's in and who's out, that we begin erasing lines and connecting with people in relationships of love. That's what we want. And that's what the church should be most characteristically known for. And I believe if that's the case, then the church is doing the work that Jesus began when he began his ministry. And so uh, we'll jump in again. This is week three. I, I, we'll go till we run out of steam with the series. And that'll be at least before Advent, I promise. When we get to Advent, we'll talk about Jesus being a baby and all. So, and that's a lot more you know, palatable maybe than you know, a series called Heretic. When I was in school uh, to get my master's degree, I, I was in ministry for a while and realized they taught me the Bible, but they didn't teach me how to do all kinds of things that somebody who is in a church and leads a church needs to know how to do. And so I went back to school at Regis University here on the north side of town. And when I did that, uh, I was pursuing a master's in nonprofit work, which was great. I got to understand the world of nonprofits. One of my professors, his name was Richard Mayle, and we became good friends. And Richard is an older man. He's a, a part of a family that is an Orthodox Jewish family. And they live here in Denver, and he has a long history with Denver. And it was fascinating to get to know him and hear the stories of his life and how he really moved on behalf of uh, people who needed justice, uh, all kinds of incredible stories that were a part of our time together, either in class or just me and him sitting down together. He was very open with his time with me and spent a lot of time with me. Understanding, however, what it meant to be Orthodox Jewish is what really blew my mind. I, mean, I, I grew up in a Christian church. I, I've been a believer all my life. I, I carry a copy of the Torah with me. You probably do too in your Bible, whether it's digital or print, it doesn't matter. I mean, we, we, have, a, we have a rich Jewish heritage as followers of Jesus. 
But I had no idea what it meant to be Jewish or to be a part of a Jewish family. So he would begin telling a story. And I don't know if you know, this coming week is the the Feast of Tabernacles. It starts a week from today. And the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, it's, it's a it's a celebration of the, the fruits of harvest for the Jewish people. And here's some information. Oh, excuse me. Siri's, <laughs> Siri was going to tell me all about, so we, we can turn that off and turn that off. Now you know how I can do this with it without notes. It wasn't that funny. So. And so Richard and his family and the many families that make up their community, Orthodox Jewish community there uh, in, in near downtown Denver, they, they go to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, they, they will set up their, their tabernacle in their backyard. They will live out of a tent. And we, you know, when I say tent, you think REI. This, this doesn't look like a, a tent you would camp in. It, it's, well, you can hop online and buy one if you want. It's a, it's a Jewish tabernacle um, that is made for this purpose and they'll live in it most of the week they they sleep some in their house you know they're you know it's just part of the way that they have adapted uh, modern life to orthodox jewish life they have all the all their meals will be in this in this tent and, and it's a reminder of god's faithfulness when the jewish people spent their time wandering in the desert and i thought you you live in a tent? He said, yeah, if you come through our neighborhood, you'll see them. They'll, they'll pop up on Sunday, the Sunday that the Feast of Tabernacles begins, and they're there all week, and you'll see all the Orthodox Jewish families. They all have their tabernacles in their backyard, and they just, they just live there. And I thought, oh my goodness, my commitment to my faith is, is so minimal compared to the things that they do. This is, this is absolutely amazing. One day in class, he mentions the fact that they have two dishwashers. And I thought, why, why do they have two dishwashers? He said, not only that, we have two fridges, we have two sinks. Essentially, we have a kitchen and a kitchen. Well, what does that mean? He said, well, this is our Passover kitchen. And so they have a kosher kitchen where they prepare the feasts and the meals centered around Passover or other times of the year when they need to eat kosher. And they keep all the plates, all the utensils, everything completely separate that has to do with meat and dairy. And I thought... I. This is, I feel like I'm learning about something I have no idea. And remember, yet I carry a copy of the Torah with me. He keeps the Sabbath uh, religiously, they would say. And so what that means is, of course, is that they don't use electricity. They don't drive. They don't handle money. The list of keeping the Sabbath is long. You won't find it in the Torah. It's because they extrapolated on the Old Testament laws regarding Sabbath keeping and decided, well, that we need to define what work is if it says don't work. And so this is how they live their life. And he's just Jewish, Orthodox Jewish. It's not some strange, otherworldly thing. It's, in fact, it is the, in fact, Paul said of the Jewish faith that it is the root that supports us in our faith. I thought, how little I know. And in fact, the truth is, when we think about what it means to be a heretic, I want you to grasp this because of where we're headed in Acts 15 today. The worlds of the Jewish Orthodox life and lifestyle felt like they were worlds apart from what they teach and what they believe and what they practice and how I live my life as a follower of Jesus. I don't even comprehend the level to which they 
have decided to follow the written words and the scriptures that I carry with me. And this is just what it means to be a part of their Jewish community. And yet, when we take this understanding of heresy and what it means to be a heretic and the transition and shift that the early church was going to go through, even though today our understanding of following Jesus and Jewish orthodoxy is just worlds apart, in the first century, they were one and the same. There was no difference between what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be a part of a Jewish community. In fact, the only people that followed Jesus were people who were part of a Jewish community. And so what they were going to experience in the early church was going to be, well, nothing short of uh, utterly breaking from a tradition that had been a part of their life for thousands of years. So we shared this verse. We just barely touched on it last week. Acts 15, verse 1, when Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so for them, becoming Jewish and becoming a follower of Jesus, they were the same things. They didn't have a a separate deal, a different track or a different approach or a different set of requirements. If somebody heard about Jesus dying on the cross and his ministry and all of those things, if they were not Jewish, for them to have entry into the community of people that follow Jesus, it meant that they had to become Jewish. They were inseparable. And so they had a a problem in the early church. Who is in and who is out? Who belongs and who doesn't belong? Who is one of us? And who needs to do something in their life different than what they're doing to become one of us? And when Paul and Barnabas showed up at this church in a place called Antioch, a very important place in the New Testament, they heard some people who come from Judea, which is where Jerusalem sits in Judea, and they were saying this, look, unless you become Jewish, you can't be saved. Or maybe another way to say it would be safe protected, under the umbrella of God's blessing, uh, enveloped in his love, part of his family, unless you want to go down this path of Jewishness, you are on the outs. Paul and Barnabas heard this, and the author of Acts, Luke, says this, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing, say it with me, you ready? I know it's a hard word, isn't it? You haven't said it in a while. Say it with me. They argued vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk about the apostles and the elders about this question, to talk with them. This this Greek phrase here, this is a good translation, but it says that in essence, uh, literally, that there was no small discussion, no small debate, no small dispute. In fact, Paul and Barnabas were beginning to think, look, if if this is what you think, that somebody has to become Jewish in order to be a part of our deal, then we have an issue with this. Now, if you grew up in church 
what I've just described to you is fairly normal. You experienced this. Maybe you showed up at a youth group rally or you went to church camp and they said, if you do these things, you're not really one of us. And they had a list of behaviors and you thought, oh, I know, I felt guilty when I did it the first time. But then I kept doing it and then this is the thing that I should quit doing. Or if you don't think like we think, because we have a list of things that you should believe, then you're not really one of us. And so maybe if you had an experience in church or church camp or a youth group or a rally or Campus Crusade for Christ or whatever it is, there was a description of what it means to be in and what it means to be out. This is the discussion that they were having as a part of the early church. And this, in fact, is the question that they're asking. The question that they're asking is the same question that we ask today. If somebody wants to be in, what does it look like? In other words, another way to say it would be this. What do you think the path to God includes? What does it include? What would you say it includes? You have a list. Maybe even if you don't understand the whole God thing. Maybe if you're just sorting it out, the path to God includes something. What does it look like? This is a question that you ought to wrestle with a bit. Because you have an opinion, I have an opinion. Theologians throughout history have always had opinions on what it means to know God or be in a right relationship with God or at least walk following Jesus. There is a path to God and it includes something. So what is it? Well, for the Jewish people, it it was involved. It was a, a big deal. The first week we said this, first week of this series, and just, just take a little, maybe blink, take a little mental picture of this, something for you to ponder, okay? First week we said this, for some reason, we think faith begins with a what? A correct set of beliefs. This isn't unusual, this is normal. This happens in most churches, this happens with most groups of believers, and it certainly happened in the early church too. And they would say, not only is it a correct set of beliefs, but it's also a correct set of behaviors. That there are things that go together, that if you're following Jesus, or you're a part of us, you're a part of our group, this is important. In fact, the deal is, without this, you can't really have a heretic, can you? Otherwise, you know, it's just a free-for-all. And that's not what the church is. In fact, they had to figure this out in the first century with the very first church, the church of Jesus. And so this is what makes somebody in or somebody out. For most of us, this list is pretty long. It's involved. And we would say, well, it involves just a few things, these two or three. And then somebody says, yeah, but what about? And you go, well, yeah, I'm probably that too. And somebody else comes along and says, did you forget about? And you go, yeah, I totally forgot about that. We should add that to the list. And so we end up with a, a pretty long list of what it means to be in or what it means to be out This idea is so ingrained in us, we don't know how to think about faith apart from it or differently than that. And so we draw circles. And at some periods in our life, that circle is is pretty small. We would say, well, I mean, I I think you got to be, and I think you got to think, and I think you got to believe, and you certainly can't be acting this way. And then sometimes in our life, that circle gets a little bigger because we meet somebody and we think... I mean, they, they say they love Jesus too. 
and it feels like they're part of the same deal I'm a part of, and they want the same things that I want. And so we draw our circle, just a little bubble there to put them in it. We want to be journeying with them, walking with them. The relationship is what matters. This is the struggle of the first century church. After Jesus died, was buried, rose again, he said to the disciples, hey, stay in the city, the Holy Spirit's gonna come. And then Jesus ascended up to heaven, the Holy Spirit came, day of Pentecost, the first church begins, the book of Acts tells the entire story. And the book of Acts has an incredible number of stories in it. But when you look at the content of the book of Acts, this is the issue in the book of Acts. And in fact, it's the issue with the rest of the New Testament, the letters as well. This question, this transition, this shift is what the entire latter half of the New Testament is about. So what did they do? Well, it's something that you should pay attention to and the result of and how they got there because you're going to go through shifts in your faith as well, and you already have, many of them. You've decided this matters, this doesn't, and this doesn't matter, it used to. All kinds of shifts in your faith and how they did this is absolutely incredible. And we've never really laid it out as a template for handling those shifts in our faith. But it should be. That's why we have the scriptures. Help us find a way, shine a light, give us a path. So what did they do? Here's what they did. The church sent delegates to Jerusalem and these delegates came from this church in Antioch. And they were leaders of the church in Antioch, and it was Paul, and it was Barnabas, two of the early church leaders. And they said, look, you're here in this city. We want to send you down to Jerusalem. And they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit visit all the believers. And as they did so, they discovered something incredible. Every place they stopped, there were Gentiles that were being converted. So this isn't just a thing in Antioch. This is happening everywhere. What do we do? And this is the way the church happened. This is what happens in the church. If it's happening in you know, Orlando, it's happening here, and it's happening in L.A., and it's happening, there's a revival breaking out, or there's people coming in. All kinds of things happen at the same time. And so here's the, here's the context, okay? Here's a little, a little map that will give you some context. Jerusalem is down here. It's just a little bit south. You can see it at the very, very bottom. They're up in this place called Antioch of Syria, or Syrian Antioch. From Syria in Antioch all the way down to Jerusalem is about 300 miles well, they didn't just hop in their car. I mean, they, they're, they're hoofing it, okay, physically and literally. And they're, they're, it, takes, it takes them a long time. And they stop on their way, and they stop at this church in Phoenicia. They stop at a bunch of churches. They get down to Samaria. They stop at churches there. And they find out that people are being saved all over the place, and they're not Jewish. They're not Jewish people. They're Gentiles, and they, they believe different things, and they come from all these different backgrounds. What do we do with this? And of course, Paul and Barnabas, they're excited about it. And the delegates from this church aren't quite sure what to do because the people from Judea gave them a different line about salvation. And they're on their way to Jerusalem because down in Jerusalem is where the elders and the church establishers lived. And they're going to have a discussion about how this is going to work. And what does it mean? In other words, what does the path of God look like? As they make their journey and they find out about all the people that are being converted, again, what does the path of God look like? Up to the time of the early church, if somebody wanted to become a Jewish individual or part of a Jewish community, it was really involved. In fact, they they made it clear. They said, look, 
the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Now, apparently I ran out of my allotment of circumcision jokes last week. And so if you want to hear some of those, you'll have to listen online. Um, But this was also requiring them to follow the entire law of Moses, which just for context, there are 613 commands in the Torah that the Jews identified that were a part of their life. 613 is a lot. And so you could read the Torah, and I don't know if you would pick out the same ones that they picked out, but this is what some of the early followers of Jesus were saying about everyone that wanted to experience the abundant life that Jesus described when he said, I came that you may have life, and then you would have it to the what? To the fullness. And they said, well, yeah, I mean, sure, but they must also live according to our Jewish customs and our Jewish way of life. And so you can read it for yourself. Acts chapter 15, the debate kicks off. And they begin discussing this issue. What does the path to God look like? Who is in and who is out? And what is required for somebody who wants to experience the fullness of life that Jesus described? Follow Jesus with their life. What does it mean and what does that path include? And they had this debate. Peter begins to speak up in this discussion. And this discussion, of course, is is riveting. It's absolutely incredible. Acts 15, read it for yourself. But then Peter has a a bit of a mic drop moment in the middle of this discussion. And and when he does, he kind of lays out what feels like is sort of the end of the argument, if you will. Keep in mind that they're debating this question. There are 613 commands in the Torah. This, of course, along with circumcision, well, if you stop by my friend Richard Mail's house today, as he's probably pulling his tent out of storage and preparing for next week's Feast of Tabernacles, and you said to him, I would like to be a part of your synagogue, what would that look like? Then his answer would be not that different than the answer that they were dealing with in the very first century. If you wanted to become an Orthodox Jew then he would outline what it meant for you to do that. And it involves circumcision. It involves 613 commands in the Torah. If you're already circumcised, they even have a substitute for it. It involves drawing blood because they believe that that was part of the process. There is an incredibly long and arduous process for somebody to become a part of an Orthodox Jewish community even today. And this is what was being asked of the Gentile believers And in that moment, Peter stood up, the debate's happening, church leaders everywhere. I don't know if you've been a part of a church leader meeting. You know, it's just a party for everybody. A lot of fun. This is what happens. Peter says this. So he looks at the people, asking for them to obey the law, and he says this. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? Uh, that you should just take a moment and let that sink in. And read me read it again. Maybe just read it again. That's what Peter says. They're saying we, we want them to obey the law. And Peter says, You can't obey the law. 
Why would you ask him to do that? I've tried. You've tried. You can't obey the law. Now, 613, uh, we know the top 10, right? We know the first 10. And if you don't know the first 10, you know at least two or three of the first 10. But 613, are you kidding me? How could you even know these? And of course, they had them memorized Hebrew letter by Hebrew letter. And Peter says, it can't be done. In fact, this was the whole point of the law. You can't do it, I can't do it, and now you want the Gentiles to try? You want them to go through the same exercise and frustration that we have gone through over the centuries trying to live up to the law? Wasn't this the whole point of the law, that we could not live up to it? Now, Peter speaks up because this whole process in Acts 15 started five chapters before. That's, that's next week. There's a whole deal with Peter and a Gentile and visions from God, and it's absolutely incredible. But what Peter is describing in Acts 15 and what they decided to do is the very thing that God has been leading us to from the very beginning. And it's this. Peter's saying this. Look, I want you to move from rules to a relationship. That's what I want you to do. And this, of course, is the story of the Christian path from beginning to end. God is drawing us from a list of things that we have to obey to who he wants us to be. He's drawing us from things that we can do by checking the box to a relationship that is living and breathing and full of life. This is what he's calling you to. And so the debate ensues. They come to a conclusion. And then they even write a letter to the Gentile believers across their understanding of the known world. And they send it with church leaders so that it can be read. And they, they say, look, hey, we understand some dudes from Jerusalem showed up. They were not us. We are not them. This is not the deal. And they took the 613 commands of the Torah and they took it down to three. Three. And when they did that, even the three are a little weird. Well, two of the three are a little weird. You should read it for yourself. It's incredible. And then we, over the course of history, have been moving from a place of relationship back to rules. And you've seen this happen in the church over and over and over again. Well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, you can't, you can't do this, you can't do that. Arbitrary things that you think, I looked in the Bible and the Bible doesn't say anything about it and I think that's not part of the deal. It just seems like this is something the church is telling me to do or not to do. And this is the story of our efforts. God's is this. Ours is that. You remember what it's like in the garden, right? Very beginning, story of Genesis, creation. God creates this beautiful place. He puts people in this place. And then he spends time with them in the cool of the day. He walks with them and talks with them. This is what he wants. He wants a relationship. And then we say, yeah, 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 but what's the rules? How do we, how do we manage this? What are the rules we have to obey? Well, okay, I mean, I guess I'll give you one. God says, 
And they go, okay, good. Now we know if we're in or if we're out, we're going to break it just to see what happens. <laughs> and we move from relationship to rules. This is the movement all throughout Scripture. Ten Commandments, a bunch of other laws. We boiled it down to 613 commands. And today, if you talk to somebody who's a part of an Orthodox Jewish community, that has numbered now into the hundreds of thousands of rules that must be lived by and obeyed. My friend, Dr. Richard Mayle, as he tries to sort through what it means to work on the Sabbath, can't consult his Torah for the answer. He has to ask his rabbi. And whenever he asks his rabbi a question, his rabbi asks him a question back. It's the most frustrating thing he's ever experienced. Dr. Mayo would say, if you want three opinions, put two rabbis in a room. You'll get three opinions. <laughs> he said to his rabbi, do you have to answer every question with a question? Do you do this every time? And his rabbi said, we do. Okay, it's going to take some of you just a second. <laughs> thousands and thousands of rules. And yet God is calling you into a relationship. God, God wants you to move from a set of rules to a relationship. I, I know, I know your temptation. The temptation towards rules is, is, is deep. It, rules tell you when you're in or when you're out. Rules tell you whether you have you know, strayed too far or not. Rules are easy to quantify. Rules you can, you know, they're black and white, boxes to check. But in a relationship, we have to lean on the presence of God. We have to ask the question about our heart and about motives, and about the things that God created us for, to walk with him. A relationship looks very different than a set of rules. And if you have been blessed with kids in your life or, or, uh, or burdened with kids in your life, um, then you know that you desire this, a relationship, more than rules. I mean, you can talk to your kids about what it means to stay within the lines, but what you want is their heart. And that's what God wants out of you. That's what a relationship is about. It's about your heart. This is the picture that we see all throughout Scripture. It's a move from relationship to rules and back and forth. And so the question that I want to ask you today as you think about all of this and the shift that the church is making in the first century and the shift that we need to make in this culture to make a difference and to connect with people in relationships of love is this question. How's it going with you and God? How is it? Are you avoiding him? Are you seeking him? What have your chats with God been about lately? What kind of ways have you experienced his presence? Did you know that the defining characteristic in all of Scripture about who God is is love? That He loves you and He wants to walk with you every day. For some of us, that feels nebulous. I don't know what it means to have a relationship with someone I can't see. And yet, you know exactly what it means to experience the depth of God's presence because you've walked into a, a place or an occasion or a setting or you stepped into a meadow or climbed it ascended a mountain and you've experienced something that you can't even put your finger on and emotionally you experience 
the depth of God's mercy and love in your life. It happens when you're having a conversation or during a worship song, or it happens at times when you can least expect it, maybe 3 a.m. and you wake up and you have this overwhelming sense that God is with you or that you need to pursue him in a new way. This is a relationship. So let me ask you again. How goes it with God? How's it been with him lately? Arm's length? Moving toward him? Maybe putting some distance between you and God? This is what God wants. Let me guide you through a prayer that will maybe help us prepare for the moment of communion. And uh, lyrics will sing, our experience of communion today is all about moving from rules to a relationship. So let me get you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just take a deep breath in if you would and breathe a deep breath out. And so Lord, here in your presence, we want to set aside some of the things that we think might define who we are with you. Lord, over the years, we've come to believe that um, there are aspects of our relationship with you that are based on performance, based on how good we are, might even be based on what we can bring to the world or how well we serve you or how obedient we happen to be. Lord, some of us have uh, believed the lie that, that we can earn your love or that your disappointment in us is what brings bad things into our life. But Lord, before us are these elements of communion. And today as we consider our relationship with you, we can see the temptation that the early church faced in the first days of its existence to move toward a place of, of rules. It, it's so much easier to quantify, easier to engage in, and even easier to find out whether you are in or whether you are out. And yet what Peter said to the crowd that day, it's a yoke and a burden that we cannot bear. And so, Lord, we come to this table today, this place, and we ask in this moment that you would meet us here at this table. And so just for a moment, just you and the Lord, the quietness of this place or online in your, your place at home, let me ask the question again and you reflect as you hear these lyrics. How is it going with God these days? 